I, I, last time I think I was up here, I talked about being a DIYer, liking to take care of things myself. And this time, my illustration is nearly the same, except it's not home DIY stuff. It's like when you get sick, we all do the same thing, right? We check WebMD, and all the doctors in here cringe. I'm sorry, but we all do it. We self-diagnose ourselves. Um, we cure ourselves, and then we tell you all about it when we come in, right? You know you've done it. You search WebMD, and you're like, how do I get rid of this? Whatever, right? There's, there's a list of things that were like, oh, I can take care of this at home by myself. Uh, you, you got some congestion. You're like, I'll just steam my way out of this thing. You know, sit over a humidifier and I'm going to get rid of this. Some of you guys use those nasty neti pots. I don't, I've not been brave enough to try. Um, but maybe one of the, the strangest things, I'm looking through this list of at-home remedies on WebMD and the very last one I've tried, and it highly recommends you don't. Even WebMD says don't try this, and I'm like, oh, I'm not doing well at this. It's ear candles. You guys heard of these things? This was college days. I, I, don't, know, I don't even know why we tried. It was like we found them in some back store country road market in Missouri, and we're like, yeah, we need that. It's, it's a candle that you stick in your ear. And again, I don't recommend this. I should not have done it before. So if anybody comes home with burns, doctors in here, if you come, if somebody comes in with burns on their face because of ear candles, it's not my fault. Um, but yeah, you stick this hollow candle in your ear and then light it on fire from the other end. It's supposed to smoke and draw out things out of your ear. And um, yeah, you can imagine the list of things that can go wrong with this, right? Because when we're doing this, I've got this thing held in my ear. We wrapped our heads in a wet towel because we knew what was going to happen. It's like, you don't want to catch fire. So you got this thing out of the corner of your ear, you can see flame, which is unsettling. And then you're just watching this thing burn closer and closer to your head as it's supposed to be drawing stuff out of your ear. And I... I I'm, I'm reading this, laughing in my office, because I'm like, why have I done this? It, even WebMD says, this is dangerous and doesn't work. Don't do it. The idea is you place an unlit end of a, of a hollow candle in your ear. It draws the wax out. But several things can go wrong. You can push earwax deeper in. Earwax can go in your ear, which, duh, why didn't I think of that as I'm burning this thing in my head? Um, you can burn your ear canal, your face, your scalp, your hair. Please see your doctor if you have a problem. Like, but we, we, we read these things on the internet and go, well, I, I can do that myself. I, I don't need help with this. And, and we think we can solve it ourselves. And, but my favorite, probably as a kid, which I, my kids aren't here right now, but we totally use this all the time. It's like, hey, just sleep it off. You'll be better tomorrow. Like what, whatever the ailment is, just oh, get some rest, drink some water. You'd be better in the morning. And 90% of the time that works, right? But we think somehow we're going to solve these, these things ourselves. But today I want to like pose this question to you because I think as we've been reading through the book of Isaiah, we've been understanding, um, especially the first 39 chapters have all been about this brokenness because of sin and our rebellion against God. And because of that rebellion against God, they desperately need a remedy, they need something to cure them. And so the question I want to ask is what makes our unbearable guilt go away? What makes our unbearable guilt go away? 
Because I think too often we're going to do the same thing. We're going to look for our own cures. We're going to find ways that we can solve this ourselves and say, I can take care of this. No need to go get help. But the thing is, I think we're going to find through here is that we need some help. So we're looking at this in our series, the book of Isaiah, we call it the gospel of the Old Testament, that we look at this pain, redemption, and beauty in the book of Isaiah as we look toward this future hope. So before we dive into what we're going to look at today, let's pray. God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that we get to dive into it today together. God, I ask that you would give us ears to hear, that you would help us to understand your word and help us to apply it to our lives. God, we love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you would turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 53, or if you have your Bible app, if you open up chapter 53, we're going to kind of walk straight through the chapter and uh, look at some, maybe some answers to find what helps or what makes this unbearable guilt go away. So Israel has kind of for a long time been looking for this remedy. And at one point they thought it was going to come through a king, that a king was somehow going to magically help this nation become better. And so they take Saul and they make him king, and he doesn't trust God. He doesn't follow God. He lets Israel down. And so they, instead of changing anything, they're like, well, we just need a different king. And it kind of repeats itself over and over and over again. And it just gets worse, and it's a disaster. And so Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, and I love some of these parallels as I'm studying this. I'm like, there are so many parallels from the whole Bible, 66 books, and Isaiah has 66 chapters. We've looked at 1 through 39, talks very much about the judgment that we receive for our sin and our rebellion against God, very much Old Testament. And at chapter 40, we see this turn, that it turns from that judgment for, that we're going to receive for our brokenness and our sin against God to the mercy and grace that we can receive through a servant that comes, which is then, you guessed it, 27 chapters like our 27 books of the New Testament. So we have all these parallels that come through the book of Isaiah. And I think that this, this chapter is kind of central to these 27 books. If you look smack dab in the middle of these last 27 books, you get chapter 53. And it like it zooms in on this, and this is all about this servant that it's been talking about. And somehow Isaiah has these powerful and precise depictions of what this servant is going to look like. And, and Israel is expecting some big king, but it's not what they expect. They, they thought they were going to have a king that was going to reign, but instead they end up with a servant that suffers. But I think in this, when they're looking for this remedy that they need, it's not what they expected, but it is what they need. So we're going to look through this. When I talk about Isaiah 53, you know that when the Bible was written, there were no we didn't have the verse markers, all those nice headings that we have over different sections. Those weren't there. It was all written as one. Um, I, I think 53 is best probably chopped with the last three verses of 52. Those ought to be probably included here. Those kind of are sandwiched in kind of the same topic, talking about this servant. But, so we're going we're gonna to add those in. We're going to sneak a few extras in um, for free, though. Um, so we're going to read Isaiah 52, 13 to 15, and then we're going to finish through the book, or for the, through that chapter. But the first section we're going to see is Jesus despised, or the servant despised. Um, let's, let's go ahead and read there, 52, 13 to 15. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall 
be on high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. So we listen to the way that this servant in verse 13 is depicted. It sounds an awful lot like Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1, where we see that in the king in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. He was high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. We have this same depiction of God seated on his throne and this servant high and lifted up. So we see these, these, these things depicted as the same thing, that this person that we're seeing as the servant is the same person as we're talking about God high and lifted up. And we're astonished at him. It says that the appearance is, is not what we anticipated, though. Like I said, the, the, the Jews believed that the king was going to come and reign. He was going to be somebody that came to protect and save them from the Babylonians, to save them from people attacking and overtaking them. But they didn't understand that they needed so much more. They didn't understand that the threat to their life was actually the sin that they faced, their rebellion against God. And so they needed this remedy to save them, and that's why they, the first 39 chapters were all laid out to help them see that. So then verse 15, we see this word many. It says many people are astonished at what Jesus did, but also many are those that can be cleansed by Jesus. See, there, there was up to this point, even Isaiah, there's gonna be a lot of parallels that we're looking back and forth at. That in, back in Isaiah chapter six, verse nine, uh, he said that there's gonna, he's gonna be going out. He's, he was commissioned to go out and to speak to people and he's gonna say, he's gonna go out and there's, the people are gonna keep on hearing, but they don't understand. They keep on seeing but they don't perceive. So this message is going to go out and it's not going to make sense to everyone. But see, Isaiah's writing this and he's writing this 700 years before Jesus comes. So there's this message being told about this servant that comes and they don't get it because it's 700 years before Jesus would actually come and do these things. Most of the things that are predicted ahead, it was just years ahead and people would actually see the coming of that prophecy that was foretold. Yet this one, 700 years, they may not see. But in this case, they're going to not even be told and they're going to understand because it's so far in advance. And I think the fact that Isaiah describes it so accurately is no coincidence. So let's keep reading then in 53, one through three. It says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So it's laid out that this servant he is our Messiah. He, he is the awaited one, and yet we look in silence because he's not what we thought he'd be. I, I love the comparison here in verse 2 that says that he's like the root from dry ground that, that we read about even before in Isaiah chapter 1, that, that there was going to be this cutting down, this leveling of things. And they talked about the trees being become stumps, and yet from that there's going to be growth. 
And so Jesus didn't try to impress. He didn't try to put on a show. And I think too often we try to dress up the gospel. We try to make it something flashy and, and something that's going to impress people. But Jesus was very unpromising. He was very ordinary in appearance, like a plant that comes from dry ground, like anything growing right now. And we think, how is that even possible with no rain? But then verse 14 tells us that he was marred beyond human recognition. And they, they didn't just think, could this be our savior, this one conquering one that they expected? It wasn't even that they were thinking, is this human? Because he had been tortured. So they turned their faces. He was despised, and they didn't understand the suffering that he faced had purpose to it. So why would he subject himself to the suffering? He knew that he had to become like us in our sufferings so that we could be able to come like him in his glory. The next thing that we continue on to read is that he was rejected. So we're going to keep reading then in Isaiah verse 4 there. But as we see that, I think we understand that we're not just given this front row, or we're not just seated far away from Jesus. Because we're given this picture of Jesus on the cross, we're given a front row seat. It's like we're standing at the foot of the cross as we see this. And I, and I think that we have to understand that because this isn't just Jesus' story. This is ours as well. He's, he's brought us in with it because he's being rejected. He's being crushed, but he's doing it as our substitute. He's in our place. And so we have to understand this from a close-up view. So verse 4 starts, it says, so listen to the comparisons for the, the he does this because of our something, right? There's all these comparisons because he took our place as a substitute. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And we all like sheep have gone astray, turned to our own ways. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. So Jesus is this, this man of sorrows. But he's not carrying his own sorrows. He's actually carrying ours. So, so somehow the, Jesus takes all the bad that, that we have, all the sin and the stain of the stain of sin that we have, he's taken upon himself to leave us clean. See, because this guilt, this guilty charge that goes along with sin that we've read about all through these first 39 chapters, that somebody's going to have to pay for this guilty charge. And just as that guilty judge, or the judge is going to say guilty, pointed at us, Jesus steps in in front of us and takes that on himself. You see, because that outstanding debt, it's like an accounting term. There's a debt that has to be paid off, and God is not going to overlook it. It's going to be paid. And I think that's something that we have to understand about God, that God's unlike us in that a lot of times we, if we want to be the judge and be heavy-handed, we, we tend to step away from mercy and grace. And somehow we think if God's going to be merciful, then he has to step away from being judge. But God can stand in the middle, and he can wear both hats. He doesn't have to be one or the other. He can be both all at the same time. And so God can say, this judgment's going to come. This, this payment will be paid. And yet at the same time, he can be gracious, gracious enough to say, 
and I'm going to send someone to take it for you. And so Isaiah 53, 5 is really the central verse. As we said, we narrowed in on our chapters, our 27 chapters, and the middle of it is 53, and verse 5 is right in the middle of it when I include those three at the beginning. This is the cent central focus, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And with his wounds, we're healed. So Jesus is rejected by the world, he's beaten, and he's crucified, and yet that's the very act that brings us freedom. By his wounds, we are healed. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us that for our sake, Jesus, he was made to be sin, who knew no sin. He was absolutely perfect. He had not sinned, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It was his blood poured out for us that actually covers us and brings us to forgiveness. So this is, this is great news for us. And we all love to hear it, especially for ourselves. You see, because all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned to our own ways. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquities of all of us. This is really, really good news for us. And we love to hear it because we can think that we want to receive what's good. We don't want to receive the bad, but yet we can think of other people always that we go, but what about those other people that are so bad? Like, I'm, I'm a little bad, but what about the people that are real bad? Shouldn't they still deserve their punishment? Shouldn't they still get what they deserve? You know, because I'm not like that person. I've not done those sins. And we can categorize those things and think that somehow we deserve the good, others deserve the bad. But we have to understand we're all in the same boat, that the, the, stain, the sins that I have in my life, I'm stained with sin just as much as anybody else. We don't categorize our sins, it's sin. And when we're all covered in sin, we need somebody to take that sin for us because somebody has to pay. And so when we are unable to cleanse ourselves from our sins because our sacrifice is not good enough, Jesus steps in and takes the iniquities of us all. So I think this is an important thing, because this can be a little bit of a hard thing to hear, right? That we have to pay for our sins, but the thing is, there is no sin that you've committed that Jesus can't take away. There's nothing that he can't cleanse from you. You are not too far gone that God's arms cannot reach out to you and embrace you. Those sins must be paid, but you have to then come to Jesus to allow him to take care of those things. Jesus' blood, it was poured out for you, for your guilt, your shame, your loss, everything. It was given to you so that you could have new life. So Jesus' rejection from the world actually makes the world acceptable back to God. So the question is, are we going to give our guilt to Jesus? Will we allow him to bear it? Because somebody is going to bear it. This unbearable guilt, somebody has to bear it. And you don't get to bear it and survive. But Jesus still says, I'll take it. So then as we continue reading on, we see that Jesus was sacrificed. And he was sacrificed as our substitute. And we're going to read in verse 7 through 9. It says that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, 
so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken, and as for this generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. And Jesus was silent. See, Jesus could have stood there and argued his innocence all day long. He had every reason to say that he was innocent. He was. He was completely innocent. And he could have stood there and said, it's not for me to take. Even Pilate and Herod, as he sat on trial and was going to sentence him, they had nothing to say. They couldn't nail him down for one thing. But instead, they turned him over to the angry people that were out there chanting, crucify him. They turned him over to them to do as they wished. And it was for those very people that Jesus laid down his life and paid for their sins. In John chapter 10, we see verses 17 and 18 that says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. See, Jesus was not overpowered. He was not outdone. He laid down his life willingly, humbly. And he took on our punishment that was, our, it was supposed to be for us. But he sacrificially gave himself as our substitute to pay our debt. And because of that, we are given new life again. You know, if, if we stopped here at verse 9, it'd be a good story. We'd see a wonderful sacrifice poured out for us. But this, this isn't just a sacrifice that, I, I mean, without his rising again, there is no victory over death. It would just be an admirable story. But we have something better than that. We, ha we have a hero that comes in and he overcomes the impossible. And so when we look at this last section, we, we, we see an empty tomb, a reason to celebrate because it's been accomplished. Something has been finished. It's, it's done. And this is the moment that Jesus looked forward to, to accomplish this rescue plan that he had to save us from our unbearable sin. So this last section, we are going to start in verse 10. It says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief, that when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. So even though he makes this, this, offer, or this offering of his life, yet somehow he sees his offering or his offspring, and he's going to prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted as righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities, and therefore I will di divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. So verse 10 talks about this crushing weight. Jesus bore this crushing weight of our sin on the cross. And, and we wouldn't survive because our sacrifice isn't good enough. We're covered with sin. We are not a perfect sacrifice without blemish, but Jesus is. And he is the one that's able to be the perfect sacrifice for us. But then it says that his offspring are going to divide the spoil. And, and, and the, 
who are these offspring? But they're the ones that benefit, the, the ones that he died for, the ones that come in as his own because of his death. And so because of Jesus' death on the cross, we are given new life. We're given freedom in Jesus' name. And I love that, that we have this repetition then of the word many in verse 12. It says that he's going to bring back the many, and the many are those that are going to benefit from his sacrifice. So we look at our own brokenness. Because we can also have this benefit. We can be a part of this many that can come in. We all have our own brokenness. We are broken because of sin. We were created to be perfect with God. But because of our own rebellion, because of our own sin, we're separated from God. And we're unable to pay the price of our own sin. And so we need a perfect sacrifice that would step in. So Jesus takes our place, he pays our debt, and he's able to reunite us with God. So then we are in turn asked to live a life of love and surrender to him. So as the worship team makes their way back up, I want us to understand the, the, the undeserved suffering of Jesus. He did not deserve it whatsoever. This is far greater than any of our at-home at remedies that we can come up with. To answer this question of how, how can we be free of this unbearable guilt? It's not of our own doing. It's not something that we can just say, I'll take care of this myself. You know, and I think the world can hear of all these things that, that solve all these problems. They can hear of these things. We go, yeah, I've heard of it. But the world needs to hear of something extraordinary. Something so outrageous that we think, how could this possibly be? And I think when they hear that God has come to take our place, to bear our sins so that we can be free, it's something that should turn their heads. And if you've not understood that yet, if you've not understood the gospel message or, or have a relationship with Jesus, that's something I'd love to have a conversation with you about. Come and talk with us this week. We have to understand that somebody has to pay for this debt. There is a crushing weight of guilt because of the sin. But Jesus is willing to bear that for us. He faced sorrow and death and pain, and he did it with a purpose. It was for you. It was for each and every one of you. He was willing to do it for you. The pain that he faced was so that you could be redeemed and made perfect, complete, and beautiful again. So will you turn to him? Will you, will you turn to the only one that, that can take away this unbearable guilt? Because it's only through Jesus and his sacrifice for you that we can be free of this unbearable guilt. His sacrifice was good enough for God, so why shouldn't it be good enough for you? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your sacrifice. And I ask that this morning you would help us to turn to you, that we would release the things that we've been holding on to, some of the sin that we have, help us to release that and turn to you, knowing that you are willing to bear it, and you already did. You bore it to the cross to help us to surrender our own lives in sacrifice to you. God, we love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us?